Right, in this week's episode, we have DAK and the Golden Age of Gadget Catalogs for you, which is great and visually appealing. A FreeBSD 13.2 upgrade procedure to 14.0 and prevents hopefully all the stumbling blocks people have experienced thus far. Running OpenBSD on a Raspberry Pi 02W, which is interesting. NetGate releases PFSense CE software version 2.7.1 and what that entails. SSH agent forwarding in Tmux done right. Some explanations about OpenBSD memory usage and more in this week's episode of BSD now. BSD now episode 538 Gadget Catalog Age. Recorded on the 7th of December 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. We hope that this well recording finds you well or you don't have any ear problems listening to us, anything. I mean, in the winter, stuff happens. And it doesn't find you in a well, which is a reference you will get when you listen to the next show. Oh, yeah. Uh, you yeah. might not. You might have to read an entire book. Well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, was, that was a good show. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is yeah, a good intro part. Into headlines that start with DAK and the golden age of gadget catalogs. Yeah, this is a, a blog post by Cable Sasser on his blog, Cable.com, a blog by Cable Sasser. Um, Cable Sasser is the ooh, CEO, founder of um, Panic Software. They make um, Mac software. Um, oh. Panic are famous for having an internet-controlled sign on the top of their building, but I think they moved recently, so they don't have that anymore. Um, they're, they're cool people. They good, do good stuff. Cable writes, uh, Hi, my name is Cable, and I, I've probably got the neatest job in the whole world. I wear many hats, and here on my personal blog, I get to write about things I really care about just for you. And from the fact that you're reading this blog at all, I think you may be a lot like me. Well, get ready for this. I've been working on this post for over 10 years. How can that be? It's simple. For a decade, I've been snapping up copies of a certain gadget catalog one by one when they're up for auction, collecting and waiting. The catalogs are disposable, and that means not many people kept them. But to me, they tell a critically important story from the golden age of electronics, gadgets, copywriting, and sales. They deserve to be preserved, and I'm the guy to do it. But hang on, I'm getting ahead of myself. What was the DAC catalog? As a kid, I didn't really read sci-fi novels. I never read a single word of J.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien. And I never used the encyclopedia to look up funny words. What I did read as a kid over and over again were the game computer magazines and the DAC catalog. I know it says a lot about me. We don't need to discuss it any further. Now, I've written about this particular catalog back in 2012, but back then I'd only scratched the surface. To explain, let's both look at the summer 83 issue. The covers here image draws you in. What is that beautiful looking tape deck? And wow, even today, that thing is pretty awesome. Okay, uh, um, the cover image is a portable cassette player. Um, it's quite a nice design. It's photographed on a, a, a wooden table. I will say a table. Um, it's lacquered wood. There's a, a personal stereo dial alongside it. It's an FM tuner, FM stereo tuner cassette box. This, this technology is a mystery to me. 
Once you open it up, you're greeted with a daisy wheel printed for you. Welcome message from, Nig from a guy named Drew Allen Kaplan. That's right, the DAC himself. Um, this is a, 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 a message inside a magazine inside this blog post. It starts, my name is Drew and I've probably got the neatest job in the whole world. I'm writing to you because from the list I found your name on it and I think you might be a lot like me. Is there some symmetry there? Okay, you're starting to get it now. Here's a catalog from a guy who chooses cool gadgets and writes about them in great detail. Every word is own. Sounds fun. And then you dig in. You see futuristic watches and wild telephones. I'm scrolling through a lot of pages of this catalog. It's, it's a very visual blog post, but it's really good. A cool Atari 2600 switching dingus or hilariously sad, depressed battery charger. Yes, battery chargers can be depressed. You might fantasize about owning one of these items. You might dream about how your life will change with it in your home and you'll be blown away by the price. But really, it's all because of the copy. I bet you've never read anything quite like it. First, a strange, catchy, probably confusing headline that gets you in, then a single item is given an entire page of attention, and most of all, the gadget is described and sold almost as if a friend is telling you about it. The photos, the copy, the gadgets, the pitch. There was so much to take in. That's the DAC catalog. Memory highlighter. I remember so many little feelings. I used to fantasize about carrying this weird computer around and in my non-existent kid briefcase and replacing these little ROMs. I wanted this SK-1 keyboard so bad, I actually got it for Christmas one year, but from Santa, not from Dak. There's lots of tech curiosities in here too. For example, what on earth is this computerless 3M plotter? And I've never seen this rad Canon all-in-one. It came with an external printer, but also an internal printer. Yeah, that's right, two printers. Basically, this catalog was and still is my escape. Anything to close the sale, Drew would always find unique ways to pitch. For years, and I mean literal years, he was harassing a radar detector company, goading them into a wager to prove that his cheap radar detector was just as good as theirs. And I will break, this is me, um, I will break from not reading any of the articles just to read a little bit of this one. Escort refuses. Dear customer, Escort turned down our $10,000 head-to-head challenge described below. Escort says that Maxon's radar detector is primitive, bottom-end, and an offshore-produced electronics gadget. I don't know about you, but to me, these words conjure a provision of a cheap toy being produced off in the middle of a rice paddy somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Escort, on the other hand, which is made in the US, exudes a high-cost quality image. Don't you just bet if it costs a fortune? Uh, but I got lost. Um, don't you just bet that it costs a fortune to build Escort and Passport and similar versions? A $20,000 challenge to Escort. As a kid, I was riveted by this challenge. Seven years later, the challenge came to an end. The conclusion was hidden in the page break. No, Dax Maxon didn't win. No, we aren't better than Passport and Escort, but we didn't lose either. Perfection. The DAC detector, you see, was given a best value award by their testers. Hardly a lose. Despite the no-loss loss, the next issue had a huge comprehensive write-up of all the radar detector testing results in perfect Drew honesty style. Drew was also prone to pitching mistakes. You get an incredible $53 bonus. Extra switch mistake. We've offered decks with a missing switch at a closeout price. Now here's an improved version of the same deck with an extra switch at exactly the same closeout price. The general idea was that someone somewhere forgot a button or put in a wrong part and thanks to their goof, you're reading about you're about to get the best deal of your life. Frankly, I loved it. A few years back, a, very, a few very, very early DAC catalogs and other early audio catalogs showed up on eBay and bore you bet I grabbed them quick. Together they tell the unseen by me story uh, of early DAC. 
1972, DAC was just one thing, tapes. Drew actually got his start by buying super high quality but used reel-to-reel tapes from recording studios for $1. He'd erase them and sell them to his college classmates for $2. Eventually, the studios ran out of tapes for, to sell to him and he paired up with manufacturers. In 1972, he was still selling tapes. But look, now we have the appearance of the first iconic DAC Gil Sands ultra bold, head, bold, ultra bold Headline Font. Then in 1981, a new format appeared called Sound Ideas. This was an interesting hybrid of tapes and gadgets. This is the missing link, a kind of proto-DAC catalog. This catalog takes you on a journey through never, the never-never land of new electronic technology. You'll think you'll find more exciting and innovative new technology, new products assembled within the 52 pages of this catalog than other catalog or store. Finally, one year later, in 1982, the first DAC catalog launched, the rest is history. According to the LA Times in 88, Kaplan claims 2 million active cons- customers, and Arnold Fishman, who runs marketing, marketing logistics, a direct marketing service firm near Chicago, pegs DAC sales at $120 million last year and growing 20% a year. His friends estimate that Kaplan mails out more than 10 million catalogs. As I began to collect these DAC catalogs, another catalog showed up in my search, and my whole worldview was thrown into chaos. I learned about a guy named Joseph Sugarman. Joseph Sugarman is holding a remote. Joe was a copywriter, a pitchman, a one-man sales force, and an unstoppable entrepreneur. In the early to mid-70s, Joe wrote and ran a gadget print ads that he ran in Scientific American, like this one. Eventually, Joe decided to put his ads together into a print catalog. At first, he called it our Space Age product catalog. And to be honest, it all felt so familiar. The headline the section header is the snappy copy, the almost too honest pitch, the closing price. You see it right? It was all there, seemingly long before DAC. Then in 1977, Joe upped his catalog game and launched a brand new catalog, Products That Think. And here's how we introduced it to the world. Get ready. There are hundreds of new microelectronic projects about to enter the consumer market, and here is how readers of Scientific American can discover them. In the next 12 months, more microelectronic products will be introduced to the consumer than in any other phase of the microelectronic revolution. How do you find out about these products? JSNA will produce its first major catalog listing, the newest consumer microelectronics products that we feel represent the best contributions to microelectronic technology. The products of Think catalog was something that was really special. The gadgets were unique, like this uh, VFD display, $395, uh, free ad splash. And sometimes there were more photos than copy. That's a, that's a really cool TV. Um, Joe's writing could be a little zippier than Drew's, but he could be very, very funny. Uh, about the only redeeming feature of this product is we don't have huge quantities to sell. The importer is afraid to order too many for fear that nobody in their right mind would buy it, let alone sell it. So we only have a few hundred to offer as part of this test program. And it was beautiful. He would often use whole pages for full bleed, incredible photos. Just relax, scroll slowly, and soak these beauties in. Um, I'm deliberately not talking about these things, so I want you to go look at the pictures in this article. But I'm reading the article because it's good. I'm, I'm still scrolling. Yeah, reading uh, these catalogs were it, it, it doesn't give it good credit in an audio only podcast so definitely go to the show notes and check out the link in the graphical way they are intended for but we're, we're getting there reading these catalogs were a revelation for me and i'll be honest with you i was rassled you see i always assumed that drew allen kaplan invented this genre but now i wondered if dak was inspired a remix maybe joe blazed the trail 
Now quickly obsessed, I picked up copies of three books Joe had written about copywriting, Advertising Secrets of the Written Word, Marketing Secrets of Mail Order Maverick, and The Television Secrets for Marketing Success. I inhaled these books. Although occasionally dated, they contained a wealth of information and served as a great breakdown for a style of copywriting I'd only ever described as reading through the I'd only ever absorbed through reading the catalogue. Here's some Joe Sugarman trivia I learned. He claims to be the first person to ever accept credit cards over the phone, inventing a new type of sales. Years later, Joe created a product called Blue Blocker, which became an absolute smash that is still available today. He sold Blue Blocker by creating what he's called the world's first ever late night infomercial. Joe also marketed a failed product called the Bone Phone. And if you ever visit uh, the panic office, ask to try the Bone Phone. I will say no more at this time. So did DAC inspire products at Think? And before that, did JSA and ads inspire DAC? Or were both coincidentally born from the same pastel-colored 80s miasma? The answer was waiting in plain sight. An amazing interview Drew did with executive coach Jay Abram back in 1998, right after the end of DAC. What happened with DAC was that an event changed my life. The event was very simple. It was a man. Name's Joe Sugarman. Probably the greatest copywriter, really the greatest promoter, and a great gentleman, a real good friend of mine. I went to one of his seminars. I attended the seminar four times. I must be a slow learner. The first time was exciting. The second time was really great. But life's experience helps a lot because the first time I hadn't written that kind of advertising, the second time I had. By the third and fourth times, I was busy writing hundreds of ads, and each time my enthusiasm would be raised to such fever levels, I came home ecstatic, ready to write. I want you to know that Joe Sugarman's Sagamaris changed my life. And there you have it. Drew didn't invent the style. Joe did, but Drew took it, ran with it, and gave full credit for it. The student became the master, and the master continued to be the master, and we all won. And I'm going to stop reading there, but this article continues. The pictures are incredible. The magazines yeah. are only in an archive. Um, you should look up our show notes and look through this and just look at the amazing pictures of old technology. It's, it's truly beautiful. Yep. Definitely uh, worth checking out. Also, uh, you should check out the newest version of FreeBSD, 4G.0. And many people have had a couple of stumbling blocks maybe along the way. So here is a post from, uh, hopefully I get this right, Con Özgür Konstantin. And the third name there is just too much. It would cause an international incident if I try to pronounce that. Um, but he has written a couple of good articles on the blog he maintains. So... This one is about the upgrade procedure, properly detailed and hopefully correct way. So at the beginning, there's a couple of things that makes FreeBSD 14 uh, interesting. We covered this in our special about 14.0. So this is just a refresher, but many people have heard about these. Uh, Cubic as default TCP congestion control mechanism increased the core support on AMD and ARM64 to 1024 cores. We have hypervisor enhancements, ZFS upgrade to OpenZFS 2.2, KTLS, and many, many more. So how to upgrade to 13 or from 13.02 to 14.0? It's important to fetch and install the latest updates and patches of your current system before proceeding to the upgrade. And of course, you must always do a backup and again, do a backup and do another backup of a backup of your current system and before you start an upgrade procedure because otherwise there's, yeah, sometimes no way back. But here is the way to do it. Upgrade FreeBSD is possible either by compiling from source or using FreeBSD-Update tool, the binary upgrade tool. I followed the latter option for its efficiency and practicality. So there is a whole set of the commands fetching and installing latest pending updates and patches, updating the installed packages themselves, upgrading to 14.0 release, and some cleanups. 
So first they ran here, or you should run FreeBSD upgrade fetch install, then a package update and package upgrade so that you also have the latest packages, even though I skipped this part. FreeBSD-upgrade-r14.0 release upgrade. That's your first command that brings you into 14.0 world or starts that process. That runs for a while, asks you if these are the sets that you remember you installed ages ago and you confirm that with yes. Then it runs for a while, then you run another FreeBSD update installed, then it asks you to reboot that machine, which it uh, then hopefully brings up again, then you can log in again, all fine. If you are like me and forgot to comment out all the OPIE uh, uh, lines in your uh, PAM.D, etc. PAM.D files in there, then of course it will complain that these are not available, which turns that the PAM rule set cannot be uh, you know, properly enforced, which in turn means you cannot log in even as root anymore. And so back you go to the starting board. Um, but since you did a boot up, uh, boot environment, hopefully they don't detail that here at the beginning. That you should do at the very, very first step. But no matter, uh, you could save yourself using a live CD. Uh, after this reboot, you can run a FreeBSD update install again. This may take some time. They have a comment here. So just wait. Fetching and installing of patches took uh, me two hours, they write. Okay. So what I did, this, since FreeBSD update is basically just a shell script, I piped that uh, or set sh minus xv to show what the shell script is doing, I'm doing a bit of debugging, and then ran FreeBSD update install. So it told me what it was doing and what kind of changes it was currently working on. Then it's time to upgrade your third party package which means you need to do a full package bootstrap dash F because otherwise package doesn't know about newer versions and uh, SSL and uh, all these things will fall apart if you don't do the bootstrap and then afterwards you do a package dash static install dash F package for package itself since package is also a package you need to update it first so that it can upgrade other packages that you have installed and once you've done that the ABIs know about 14.0 and then you can do a regular package update and package upgrade procedure followed then by your last FreeBSD update command and that is FreeBSD update install. Then you do the second reboot. All right. Then after that comes up again, you can clean up temporary package all these and now unused orphan dependencies using package clean and package auto remove in sequence. Now, due to a newer version of OpenZFS, it's time to do a boot code upgrade. That is a bit of a discussion if you need that, if you all need these new features on your root pool. But here it's explained how to do that. This is needed only when you have a system booting from ZFS. If your system is running on UFS, then you don't need these steps. First, create your boot methods, uh, or check if your boot method is traditional CSM slash BIOS or UFI. If you're on BIOS, then uh, at one point you may be out of luck in the future when the boot code grows beyond the size that the BIOS boot code can hold. With UAFI, you are future-proof so far. Um, this is me, not from the article, but uh, always think about if you really need that, uh, all these features on your root pool, it's sometimes not necessary to have. But here they detail the steps, as I said. So we have traditional BIOS boot there. In this example, if the answer is UEFI, you can skip to a separate section, the upgrade procedure here, and they detail how to do that. They identify which boot partition you have with gpart show, then write the boot code using gpart boot code to the proper partition and the proper index, that's important. And then you can do a zpool upgrade because now you have a proper boot code in your bootloader and know about what new features ZFS supports so that you can boot from that pool. Same is true for a uh, UEFI pool. They all, 
mix in uh, boot environments in there that in my opinion should be the very first command so that you can always go back to your 13.2 install as it was before the upgrade but definitely a good way to follow along and start doing the upgrade if you haven't done so already and that avoids a couple of uh, stumbling stones that may happen when you go this route Okay, with all the updates going around, it must be time for the news roundup. And first in the news roundup, we have another blog post from TomFatigue.net running OpenBSD on a Raspberry Pi 02W. I had that Raspberry Pi 02W lying in a box. And because I changed my network configuration, I decided I could use that Pi as a DNS and DHCP server. But I wanted to see the benefits from my PoE switch. It turns out to be really simple, but with the proper hardware, so here are the notes. Get the OpenBSD installer for ARM, I'm using 7.4. Get the Raspberry Pi 02W device tree blob, uh, these are just FTP commands. For the hardware, I have a Pi 20W, a 32GB SD card, a WaveShare PoE Ethernet USB hub hat for the Raspberry Pi 2, uh, one RD45, one three times USB, 919 six three five uh, it's a part number uh mini hdmi to hdmi cable uh hdmi cable and a hdmi monitor a usb keyboard uh cat6 rj45 cable and a tp link switch attach the pi to the poe hat for the screws plug the hdmi cable to the pi plug the usb keyboard to the hat do not plug rj45 plug the micro sd card to, into a machine i use my thinkpad transfer the OpenBSD installer onto the card and add the dpd DTB file to it and configure OpenBSD. So DD the image, uh, mount the image you've just DD'd on the SD card and then copy the DTP over and configure the bootloader to use a serial port. Take the micro SD card out of the laptop and plug it into the Pi. Plug the RJ45 cable into the Pi and the Pi should boot because it's getting power. Thanks to the HDMI monitor and USB keyboard. You can proceed to the OpenBSD. You can proceed through the OpenBSD installation as usual. Be sure to configure URE0 network interface using Wi as the Wi-Fi card has no firmware yet. When asked for disk partitioning, set the select hole and select HTTP mirror to pull sets from. When the installation is finished, turn off the Pi, take out the microSD card, put it back in the machine, copy the DPD and the microSD card back to the microSD card so it can boot again. And instruct OpenBSD to use HDMI or put by editing a file in the in um, the, the bootloader. Take the micro SD card out and plug it into the Pi. I'm using a headless uh, with only the RJ45 cable plugged in from testing a USB switch allows connecting USB keyboard and sticks and stuff to it. Uh, performance overview: the PoE hat provides a 10100 Realtek RTL8152 network interface. Um, with speed test CLI, it can do about 91 megabit second um, up and down. I guess that would depend on your home network. Disk performance to download an OpenBSD um, set is uh, 4.78 megabytes a second. And disk performance when installing and extracting the Python package. Oh, I don't know how to read this output in a concise way. Overall, it's quite good. Now let's use it. Thank you for the blog post. I'm, I'm hoping to hear what's next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, always nice tracking what people are doing and the projects they're doing with these little embedded devices. Talking about embedded devices and other things networking-wise, NetGate has released PFSense CE software version 2.7.1. 
And are pleased to announce this, of course. And PFSense C software is an open source project. For those of you who have never heard about it, NetGate has been providing stewardship and resource for it since 2008. That's quite some time by now. We support the PFSense CE project by contributing releases, snapshots, and updates of PFSense CE software, as well as making other code contributions, FreeBSD related updates, and more. Thank you, PFSense and NetGate. Um, Major changes and features, that's what people are interested in. OpenSSL upgrade to 0. No, not 0. We are at 3.0.12, right? This change was essential because OpenSSL 1.1.1 has reached end of life and will no longer receive security patches for vulnerabilities. The upgrade to OpenSSL 3.0.12 means that a lot of number of older and weaker encryption and hash algorithms have been removed and security certificates based on these older weaker hashes have been deprecated. So we want to always be on the side on the safe side here. We highly recommend reviewing the release notes and uh, how to upgrade these procedures or follow the upgrade procedure. The key 8 DHCP server was added as an opt-in feature. And basic functionality is present in version 2.7.1, but it's not feature complete. They will are working on it. You can find a blog post on their website about how that progresses. They have a little video here on the website how to switch to the KIA DHCP server and how to uh, activate that. They also have improved support for SCTP. IPv6 router configuration has moved uh, to a different section in the config menu. Additional changes, PHP has been upgraded to 8.2.11, base operating system upgraded to a more recent point, FreeBSD 14 current, yep, you want that. The release also addresses a number of bugs and other issues. They also detail in another video how to do the upgrade, with an upgrade guide, as well as backup and recovery instructions. All right, and we have another blog post this week from uh, Giulio Marino. Um, I, I, I was confused. Um, SSH forwarding and Tmux done right. The SSH agent is a little demon that holds your private key's memory. This is particularly handy when your keys are protected by a passphrase, so you can unlock and add your keys to the agent once, and from then on, any SSH client such as SSH can interact with the keys without asking you for the passphrase again. But SSH agent becomes even handier when you primarily work on a remote workstation over SSH. Under these circumstances, you will often need the remote workstation to establish SSH connections to other remote machines, e.g. to connect to GitHub, in those situations, you can copy your private keys to the remote workstation, generate different private keys on the remote workstation, or forward your SSH agent so the remote workstation can leverage the keys from your client machine without ever having to travel over the network. Anyway, this isn't an article on what SSH for an SSH agent is or how to use it. That's already well documented. This article digs deeper into how the forwarding feature works, how it becomes problematic for long-lived processes such as Tmux, and what you can do about it. Agent Forwarding 101. When you connect to an SSH host, the SSHD server process receives the connection, forks itself, lowers the privilege to the user requesting the connection, creates a pseudo terminal to the host requested program, typically a shell, spawns programs inside the pseudo terminal. Take a look at this process table, which shows the SSHD process running on the server I'm typing this on. PS-AX-O user PID command grep SSHD. Uh, there's root SSHD, root SSHD um jmmv priv and then at jmmv sshd jmmv at pts slash one what you can see in the output above is the listener process with pid 3617 accepting connections on port 22 a priv set controlling process on by root from my session with pid 82202 responsible for doing the authentication 
and the process serving my session on the pseudo terminal pts slash one owned by myself with PID 82204. The user owned SSHD instance on PID 82204 is what hosts the shell you interact with on the client connected to the server. This process is in charge of receiving your keystrokes from the network, sending them to the pseudo terminal, and then ferrying the pseudo terminal's output to the terminal window where your client runs. The pseudo terminals are fascinating, by the way. Go read OpenPTY. Oh, yeah, cool. I want to do that. But, oh, it's a dead link. Um, oh, is it? Yeah, but it's a man page. Uh. It's a man page. I just found the man page. Um, <laughs> okay. When Oops. you enable SSH uh, forwarding with a, um, just, just it's a major divergence. Uh, Ted Uanks, the OpenBSD developer, has been talking on the Fediverse about writing a terminal emulator, and it sounds like great fun. He keeps breaking stuff, and it, it just sounds funny. Anyway, when you enable SSH forwarding with SSH-A invocation, something else happens. The user-owned SSHD server process creates a Unix domain socket on the remote machine and starts serving on it. Whenever an SSH process on the remote machine connects to this local socket and sends a request to it, the SSHD process proxies the request back to the client machine, and in turn, the client machine's SSH process contacts the client machine's SSH agent to perform key-related operations. This path to the socket on the remote machine is exposed by the SSH auth sock environment variable, and all SSH commands know how to access it. Because a picture is worth a thousand words, but this is a podcast that I'm not reading a picture, uh, go, <laughs> go look at the blog post. This is a picture. Um, I did not say it explicitly, but when you, you can guess what happens when you disconnect from the remote session. The SSHD instance for the connection terminates and deletes its local socket on the way out which is normal because that process was the one in charge of proxying SSH connections back to the SSH client. So with the process gone, the socket becomes useless. Unfortunately, the fact this is normal doesn't make it less problematic. The path to the forwarding socket is exposed to the process via the SSH auth socket environment variable. So every process starts with the, within the SSH session gets cached a copy of this path in its environment. If you have a long-lived process such as tmux that can survive across sessions, all of a sudden, the value of SSH auth socket is cached at startup time, ends up pointing to a non-existing file breaking all future SSH interactions. Look, there's another picture. I'm not reading the picture. I skipped a lot of pages in this blog. In this, I skipped a lot of pages in this podcast today. The specific sequence of events represented in the diagram leads to the problem is this: uh, SSH to the server and with SSH forwarding. Start tmux, detach tmux, log out of SSH, reconnect with SSH with agent forwarding, attach to existing SSH tmux session. Run SSH command. See the command fail to communicate with the forging agent, forwarding agent. So what can be done about it? Usual broken solutions. Most usable solutions I find to this problem are hyper-focused on propagating new values of SSH auth sock to impacted processes. These articles present how to re-inject a fresh value of this variable into tmux. Some of them go to a greater extent by showing you how to propagate the variable's value to shells already running inside the tmux session, because obviously the shells outlast SSH sessions too, and they have their own copy of SSH auth sock. This mostly works, but it has two problems. It's a pile of hacks. I love me a pile of hacks. And a whack-a-mole battle you will not win. You can patch tmux, you can patch the shell, but what else can you run inside a, term, a tmux that outlives SSH sessions? Emacs, Vim, a transitive outbound SSH connection. All of these have their own copies of SSH auth sock, so you can't monkey patch all possible long-lived processes that cache an ephemeral path in their environment when they started. It's insufficient. Some of the solutions linked to the above leverage a symlink to keep the socket's name stable, but these solutions refresh the symlink every time you log into the remote machine and then point SSH auth sock to the symlink. 
This is good because it solves the problem of having to monkey patch all possible long-lived processes. Unfortunately, this breaks as soon as the latest connection to the server disconnects. Uh, once this happens, the symbol link will be dangling until you establish a new session to update it. Can we do better? Of course we could do better, and in various ways, actually, I'm surprised I haven't found them online with these, but here are some. We can refine the symlink approach described earlier by adding a logout script to accompany the login value. The login script, the goal of this pair would be to keep track of all possible valid sockets, and then when a session disconnects, refresh the symlink to point to a still valid one. This can work in the common case, but breaks if SSH sessions suddenly die, which is pretty normal thing about putting your laptop to sleep. You can use LD preload to hijack calls that open a socket, check if they seem to refer to an SSH agent socket, and then redirect those to any, any other alive SSH agent socket we can find on the machine. This possibly works well, but leveraging LD preload is a pretty heavy thing to do because it impacts all processes. Furthermore, this variable is pretty sensitive, so it's probably cleaned by many programs at startup time, which means it can be ineffective. We can supplant the SSH agent with our own daemon that serves a local socket on a well-known path. This daemon redirects all SSH agent requests to a working SSH agent socket. The working socket is determined by searching slash temp for any agent socket that has the user's permissions to open and using the first one that works. We call this daemon when the user first connects to the remote server and we can fix up SSH auth sock value at login time well before any process can cache the wrong value. This last solution is, of course, what I prototyped in SSS. I said too many S's today. This is the last solution that I prototyped in SSH Agent Switcher. It took me about an hour of evening coding to get this to work, an extra hour to write integration tests and refine the implementation, and a final half hour to set up the GitHub project. It works fine for me, but don't expect it to be perfect. As a side note, I wrote this program in Go, not because I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Well. <laughs> but because it is a necessity due to the context in which I probably have to use this. Uh, now the question is, is this safe? And the answer is, I think so. The SSH agent switcher daemon runs in the context of the user account, so it can only access sockets you already have access to. The only risk comes from the creation of the daemon's own Unix socket. If a socket is accessible to anyone on the remote machine, then that person would be able to access your forwarded agent and leverage credentials that live on the client machine. Uh, I've taken care to create the socket with type permissions, but the question remains, is the default location under slash temp good enough? By the way, this all explains the warning in the SSHD manual page about the use of agent forwarding, and you can go find that warning yourself in the show notes. Thank you, Julio Marino. <laughs> Excellent. And now to some explanations about OpenBSD memory usage over on Celine and the data swamp, of course, .org. Uh, she introduces this article and many of her others uh, we covered earlier, but this one is uh, introduction part. I regularly see people reporting high memory usage on OpenBSD when looking at some monitoring program output. Those programs may not be reporting what you think. The memory usage can be accounted in different ways. Most of the time, the file system cache stored in memory is added to memory usage, which led to think a high memory consumption. Aha, uh -huh. how do you figure the real memory usage is the next article asking, or the next section in the article. Here are a few methods to gather the used memory. First, using PS. You can actually use PS and sum the RSS column and display it as megabytes using AWK. Uh, PS AUWXX piped to AWK, and then you do a sum plus equals $6, the column number 6 you want to sum up, and at the end you do a little print of a sum, and since you want to use, uh, want to have megabytes, you just divide by 1024. And uh, of course, she writes, you could use the fifth column if you want to sum the virtual memory, which can be way higher than your system memory, hence why it's called virtual. 
good. Or you look at top, second option. When running top in interactive mode, you can find the memory line at the top of the output, like this memory real something, actual total free something, cache something, swap something. This means there are 2400 or 244 megabytes in her case, uh, or in this example, of memory currently in use and 158 megabytes in the swap file. The cache column displays how much file system data you can have cached in memory. This is extremely useful because every time you open a program, this would avoid seeking it on the storage media if it's already in the memory cache, which is way faster. This memory is freed when needed if there are not enough free memory available. So the free column only tells you that uh, this RAM is completely unused. The number, in her case 733 megabytes, indicates the total real memory, which includes memory in use that could be freed if required. Otherwise, if someone finds a clear explanation, uh, she'd be happy to read it, okay? And then the third option you can use is using sysdat. The command sysdat in OpenBSD specific, or is OpenBSD specific, even though there's at least on FreeBSD that also has sysdat. Okay, never mind. Uh, often overlooked but very powerful. It has many displays you can switch to using the left and right arrows. Each aspect of the system has its own display. Ah, that is, yeah, I think the FreeBSD one doesn't have left and right navigation, does it? Or I've never used it. Anyway, uh, the default display has a memory tools or totals in kilobytes area about your real free or virtual memory. Going further, inside the kernel, the memory naming is different. There are extra categories. You can find them in the kernel file sys slash ufm slash uvmexp.h. And she has a link to the GitHub page where you find the lines where this is explained. Conclusion. 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 When one looks at OpenBSD memory usage, it's better to understand the various fields before reporting a wrong amount or that OpenBSD uses too much memory. But we have to admit the documentation explaining each field is quite lacking. Okay, But definitely we can now find where to look and tools that uh, display it properly and compare our notes. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated and then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, what else is left? Oh, I guess we're at the end already? Yeah. That leaves people getting uh, into the Christmas spirit and buying holiday presents? Is that a thing? I guess. I mean, what what they've done is they've not written in to give us any feedback. So we've not There's had, that, yeah. not had emails to feedback part. at bsdnow.tv. Um, and so we've none to talk about. You could have asked great questions and you just missed this chance. But yeah, next don't week, be shy. Next week, we might answer some more questions. You have to write there, in. There's question time, yeah. Maybe, maybe. You'll see. Um, uh. If you want want even more BSD now in your life, you could join our reasonably quiet Telegram channel uh, by going to t.me slash BSD now and, and popping in and saying hello. You can say hello to Benedict. Someone did. For today. example, yeah. or to Tom or to Jason or JT even when he's around. So that is a way to reach us uh, besides email, of course. 
And, uh, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Do you know the joke about the Christmas present stuff? If you get asked, hey, do you have all your Christmas presents already? Then you just say, no, I get them on Christmas Eve. Okay, that didn't probably work well. I didn't land. Um, I didn't get it. <laughs> or Christmas morning for uh, people who wait one more night. Oh, okay. That, that makes more sense. Yeah, okay. That's more sense. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we Germans do it on the 24th in the evening. So uh, whatever uh, happens, or if you actually do the Christmas thing, you will find another episode waiting for you next week and hopefully your holidays aren't uh, as stressful as they are always uh, <laughs> imagined they would be and that you have a nice time and a healthy time until we have you back in the show right or yep. you have us in your ears so speak, <laughs> one way or the other speak, speak to you next week but also then next yep. year yeah something like that look forward to that JT make us sound good we didn't sound good there they're like <laughs> <laughs> we'll see 